Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday, time to venture into the vault. This time we're going to be going back to an old uh, classic October episode that you did with Christian a few years ago, right? That's right. This is the uh, the, the Halloween costume made me do it. Uh, this, is the, this is basically a study of what happens when we put on a Halloween mask. How and to what extent does it change who we are and how we behave? Uh, is a child wearing a, a Halloween mask more likely to get into mischief than one? that is not wearing a mask, uh, it's a fascinating area of discussion. Gets into stuff like enclosed cognition, etc. This was originally published on October 8th, 2015. We hope you enjoy it today. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, it is October, and we, if you haven't noticed, are covering a lot of topics that are around kind of the October theme of horror and Halloween, but also things like being dead or burials, or for for today, we're going to get real literal with it and talk about Halloween costumes. But we also want to let you know that towards the end of the month, we're going to be doing two kind of special things that we want our audience to know about. The first is that we're going to be periscoping our listener mail starting on October 23rd, which is a Friday. So if you're on Periscope or if you're not, uh, sign up for it and you can check us out responding to our listener mail and kind of interacting with our audience in real time on that platform. Yeah, and if you don't know what Periscope is, don't worry. I didn't know it like a few weeks ago. Yeah. So we'll put up a blog post as well um, at some point here that will give you the deets on what exactly we're talking about. Exactly. We'll be pushing the information out on our social media channels as well, which include Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. On all of those platforms, we're known by the handle Blow the Mind, and we don't just post our own stuff there. We curate content from all the kind of weird sciencey stuff that we find across the Internet. Uh, and if you want to be included in that listener mail, don't forget that you can always reach us at the email address blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. The other thing that we have coming up at the end of October is the return of our video series, Monster Science. Robert, you want to tell them a little bit about this? Yeah, join uh, Dr. Anton Jessup, a kind of a daytime horror host, VHS-era basement creep, who's going to uh, walk us through the real-world science behind uh, some rather outrageous uh, monster movie nasties. Can you give us a preview of what kind of monsters we're going to see in this oh, season? Oh, yes. We're gonna, you're going to look at shambling mushrooms. You're going to look at werewolves. We're going to look into uh, Big Trouble in Little China, one oh. of the, the uh, creatures from that as well. That's exciting. As well as a certain character from uh, Mortal Kombat. So. Oh, yeah. cool, cool. So uh, what's great about that is you've got a werewolf episode coming up with that. We just published the episode on Wolfsbane. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, we're trying to tie things together a little bit here. We also have an episode coming out about Egyptian mummification. And we have a mummy episode of Monster Science from the first season. So October, you can see, is our favorite month. Which brings me to today's episode. Robert, what are you going to be for Halloween this year? Uh, well, see, this is a this is a complicated question um, with me because I have the boy. Yeah, so the boy is going to dress up, and uh, and and me and my wife have done kind of like combo costumes in the past. Sure, but now we have this uh, this weird extra actor in the scenario. <laughs> yeah. So, like last year, we did a Twin Peaks thing where um, oh, I remember that. Yeah, I saw the picture. Yeah, yeah where I was uh, um, the the, the comic Glocken character. Um, Is she the log lady? Yeah, my wife? wife was the log, log lady, and we dressed our son up as uh, the dancing uh, little guy. <laughs> yeah. um, and and my uh, my father in law played the. Um, 
the, the tall man. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I do remember seeing that picture. Yeah. yeah, that was a great idea. Yeah, so that one worked. But now he's he's a little more insistent, like he, he wants to be a giraffe. And, like, you know, okay. how it's hard to work a giraffe into a, a, a team costume effort. Yeah, absolutely. I, the only thing that comes to mind is, like, uh, what's that elephant children's story, Babar? Yeah, Something like that. And see, maybe. I don't want to dress up like yeah. Babar. Yeah, you're not. Yeah. You don't strike me as the Babar. Yeah, type. I would. I would love to do a mummy like combo costume where we all dress up as different takes on on mummies. He could be a giraffe mummy. He could. Yeah, there's I mean, no reason why they wouldn't have mummified a giraffe. That would have been an interesting process embalming all those giraffe <laughs> organs. Yeah, I would think so. So yeah, maybe mummy giraffe. We'll see. How about yourself? Uh, I haven't nailed it down yet, but I have this old prison outfit that I used for a video I shot one time. So. I'm kind of considering doing a Hannibal Lecter thing, okay. uh, but it would involve me having to be strapped down to a dolly and being pushed around by somebody, <laughs> and I don't think I can talk anybody into being, you know, the orderly Barney from the from the asylum that, <laughs> that Hannibal's in. That's the thing about about certain uh, combo costumes, is yeah. they're not all even-handed. Sometimes exactly. they require somebody to be something kind of boring. It, yeah. yeah, well, some people are into that. I don't think it, my wife definitely wouldn't want to be Barney, so uh, we'll come up with something maybe she can be will graham yeah <laughs> so the reason i ask is because today we're going to be talking about halloween costumes and how they relate to our culture but also to our identities and how we form and change our our identities in conjunction with what we're you know costuming as yeah it's hard it's a really it's a really fascinating topic because when you put on a mask when you put on a costume you're engaging in a, in a very like, in a very powerful act here. You are becoming somebody else, not only externally, but internally, as we'll discuss. Yeah. And it's been a it's played a vital role in traditional uh, religions throughout history. It's uh, you can you can see both positive and negative, very negative aspects of, of mask and costume usage throughout time. And yet today we often just relegate it to just sort of childhood silliness. Right. Oh, the kids are going to put on masks right. and go around parading through the, the community. Well, when, but if you stop and you think about it, it's it's terrifying. You know? <laughs> yeah, and I think that there's an argument to be made too that, and we're going to get into this. That it's definitely over the last thirty years or so, maybe forty years or so, it's started to become an adult thing, at least in American culture, mm -hmm. and that the rise of cosplay in sort of, I guess, nerd culture. But I, you know, I think it's gotten to the point where cosplay is is beyond nerd culture now. I was in the grocery store the other day, and there's a magazine dedicated to cosplay that you can buy at your hmm. local supermarket. So I feel like that's sort of elevated past, you know, just, just for geeks when you can buy it, like, on the shelf there. Yeah, and it's great to hear that, especially looking back. At, like, I definitely remember a time when I was still trick-or-treating, but among my peers, I was probably too old for such nonsense, sure. and, and yeah. occasionally uh, you would run, you would uh, trick or treat at a house, and you'd see somebody your own age in there, not in costume, and they kind right. of look at you like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, but um, then you, you know what they weren't doing? Having fun. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, the dude in question that I'm thinking about is like I looked him up on Facebook, and he's still not having fun to yeah, this day. Exactly. So I'm proud that I wore my my well, Halloween costume. You know, but the thing is, is that guy, and I'm I'm sure anybody listening to the episode right now can identify with costuming and that sort of 
role play identity change element and there's mm-hmm. a science to this too this isn't yeah. just going to be us riffing about what it's like to wear halloween costumes there's been a ton of studies on this way more than i thought we would find actually yeah there's a like i knew there would be a tie uh, to the topic of enclosed cognition that we'll talk about and and, and uh, long-time listeners to the show might remember uh, an episode in the past that dealt a little bit with enclosed cognition but there's there are a number of studies that deal specifically with halloween costumes and how halloween costumes impact both children and adults yeah, so there there are two specific things that I want to sort of start off with as maybe like thesis statements for this episode, and we'll see if they're proved by the evidence that we go through throughout okay. the episode. Uh, the first is that there's this idea that Halloween is a like, and the costumes that we see and the acts that we see during it are a reflection of what's happening in our culture at that point in time, mm-hmm. and that it sort of. Uh, is also a transgressive element, right? That there are boundaries within our society that are, some of them are asking to be pushed and Halloween is the time when that happens. And in, you know, in some degrees that can lead to social change and other degrees, as we'll talk about, it's maybe uh, a a kind of social regression Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, But so I, I want us to keep that in mind that it, it seems to be this period of time that reflects Kind of, I, I hate using this term, but the zeitgeist of what's going on in American culture at the time, and it, I understand that it's becoming more popular in some European nations as well. So, um, you know, perhaps they're seeing that as well. Well, you know, just over the past uh, ten years, you can look to one particular Halloween costume as playing a significant role in uh, in social uh, movements. That being, of course, the V for Vendetta mask, which is oh yeah, a Halloween costume <clears throat> mask based on the, the motion picture. That's always fascinated me. From the perspective of, uh, you know, uh, and I'll talk about this later, but, you know, in my outside life, I write comic books and I attend a lot of comic book conventions throughout the year. And so I see a lot of costumes. And when the movie came out and all of a sudden I started seeing a lot of people both at these shows and at Halloween wearing the Guy Fawkes uh, mask, mm-hmm. I, it really struck me as being ironic because there's such a... um as you just brought up, there's such an association and symbolism of rebellion associated yeah. with that that mask that I I don't know necessarily that the the costumers themselves even knew it necessarily, even though the movie sort of presents that as a as a, um, a symbolic point. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a fascinating transformation with that particular mask, that particular character. Yeah. So before we start talking about these studies. Which, you know, we're going to be working our way from 1976 up until present day. There's been so many studies. Uh, I want to just throw out this fact for you. Okay. In 2014, $1.4 billion were spent on Halloween costumes in America alone. And that's according to the National Retail Federation. That is a tremendous sum of money. And I guess I never really stopped to think about it before. But of course, like... I don't know what it's like in other parts of the country, but here in Atlanta, we have these these like pop up Halloween stores mm-hmm. where like there used to be, uh, you know, like a department store, like a Macy's or something. And it's since left. And for just the month of October, these Halloween stores move in and all they sell are costumes and Halloween knickknacks and things like that. Uh, and I always it always struck me as like, wow, like, can you turn a profit just in a month like that? And obviously yeah, you, can, you can if there's that much money going into it. And it's especially um, interesting to, to see that it's doing that kind of business after all those kids uh, melted in those silver shamrock masks. Uh, over years that back. was a shame. That was yeah. a shame. I was young when that happened. <laughs> but, yeah, I can't believe in the snakes came out of their eyes and all yeah. that. Whew. 
We are, of course, referring to <laughs> Halloween 3, colon, Season of the Witch, uh, one of our favorite movies here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. In fact, last year, uh, Joe, super producer Noel, and myself got together with our partners and watched that movie. Uh, I don't know if it was on Halloween, but it was like the week of Halloween, <laughs> uh, and it was great fun. Yeah, I think I watched it for the first time last year as well, um, in, at night by myself while the, the family was sleeping. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's a very flawed film. Uh, but oh, yeah. <laughs> it has some, it has some very, just fantastic elements in it from the just wonderful soundtrack by John Carpenter and Alan Horth yeah. to, uh, the, the weird mix of like androids and a, and occult magic and big scary corporations. Like on paper, it's, it's a fabulous film. It, it, right. <laughs> we were saying before the taping that it would be, it's ripe for a remake, but it probably will never get remade. Like yeah. the idea of, so the central conceit of the movie is that there's an evil magical corporation that is producing, is it three Halloween masks? It's three. Yeah. It's and like a, a witch, a skull, and I don't Jack o' lantern? Is that yes, the other one? Yes. That's the other. Uh, and, and, uh, they're children's masks. And if these children wear their Halloween masks and watch, a like evil magical commercial simultaneously mm-hmm. they will all die yeah they will die and serve as some sort of a child sacrifice right. in a vague uh, ancient ritual it's a bizarre um, movie but yeah. it's this was before basically the idea i think was that the halloween movies before they were dominated by michael myers were supposed to be like an anthology series right sort this of was like, going to kickstart anthology yeah. halloween so yeah uh, each year we'd get a different halloween film with a different plot and sadly that didn't happen because right. nobody liked halloween three <laughs> until so. it had time to uh you know to cure and uh, and mature <laughs> over over the years yeah, it's like a fine wine it is yeah <laughs> it is a fine wine uh that not everyone's palate is going to be um, susceptible to but at heart uh halloween 3 season of the witch is about masks changing children absolutely and now in the the movie it changes them into a pile of um, goo and snakes and whatnot but in reality it does seem to change our children into something else yeah i wonder if uh well i wonder if those screenwriters of halloween 3 were inspired by this first study or maybe the first two studies we're going to talk about because the first was in 76 mm-hmm. the next one was in 70 79 yeah so the whole time when i'm reading these i'm picturing the uh the sort of idyllic uh, <laughs> uh you know 19 late 1970s setting of the at least the first two halloween films. right yeah um, so this is a 1976 study, effects of de-individualization variables on stealing among Halloween trick-or-treaters. Uh, and this was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, again in 76, February. Uh, so well, this is what happened. The psychologists involved uh, covertly observed uh, the behavior of a, about a 1,000 trick-or-treaters at 27 different Seattle homes. So each each house has the same setup, okay. right? One bowl filled with candy and an additional bowl filled with pennies and nickels. Because, you know, you're going trick-or-treating, you want to get some pennies and nickels. That's Yeah, that's, <laughs> that struck, struck me as weird, but I was also born a year after this study was conducted, <laughs> so maybe it's something I missed out on. So um, the, the researchers answer the door when the Halloween uh, trick-or-treaters show up. And uh, sometimes the researcher asks the ma- the costume children what their names are. Sure. Like, oh, okay. you're a delightful looking witch. What's your name? Oh, it's Susie. Other times they let the children retain their anonymity. They can continue to just be werewolves and mummies and witches. Right. And, and that's important because it helps to reinforce the identity. Right. That okay. they are no longer Susie or the and Johnny. Yeah. Instead, yeah. they are you know Broomhilda the witch and yeah. uh, you know Oscar the mummy or whatever. Okay. Um, so. At this point, 
the researchers say, all right, I have to go uh, deal with something else inside the house. I'm going to shut the door. Only take one piece of candy. And then they, they shut the door. But they're they're watching through the, 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 the peephole the whole time. Okay. Nice scientific use of the peephole. Yeah, they didn't have like a nest thing that they could mount yeah. on their wall and watch through their smartphone. Yeah, they're just going around like <laughs> peeking through a curtain uh, and scribbling on a notepad. Yeah. Uh, the results, though, were kids who were allowed to remain anonymous, stole money and extra candy roughly three times as often as those <laughs> who gave up their names. Okay. And kids who came in groups, so just a complete pack of, um, you know, short little gremlins, um, those who came in groups, both named and anonymous, were more than twice as likely to steal as those who came alone. Wow. Okay. So I don't, I guess the study, the, the, the findings of this aren't all that surprising knowing what I know just from living life and having costume mm-hmm. before and knowing other human beings. Right. So that the, the idea of the anonymity, this is pre-social media too. So I think that that has something to do with it as well, right? Right. That we now know that anonymity leads to people doing things that they think that they won't, uh, have repercussions for. Right. Right. Um, but then that the, the group factor as well is, is the really interesting one. So how the pennies come into play? Did they steal those as well? Yeah. The nickels? Yeah. Okay. And, and my, my reading of the, this, the study, they didn't even say, okay, also you can take a certain amount of coins. Uh, but rather the coins. <laughs> they were just, just left them there. It was yeah. like, yeah, this is just for decoration. And then <laughs> these kids just grabbed it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's also interesting to, to read this thinking about my own interactions with, granted, these are like three-year-olds, but watching them feed off of each other's energy. Like you get two three-year-olds in a room, and they'll suddenly just start feeding off each other and displaying behavior that individually they wouldn't do, but they just... They're just like there's a heightened susceptibility to groupthink and uh, you know imaginative um, uh, deassociation. It's it's interesting. Well, we're going to talk about this throughout this episode, and there's a study that's coming up that specifically refers to it. But that is like that zone, that age around between three and five is sort of that zone where you're still you understand sort of you know when people say like you're a boy or you, you know you're um you're from Atlanta Georgia or whatever mm-hmm. like you understand those words but the actual identity part hasn't really like all glommed together yet so the group think kind of thing seems to happen a little easier at yeah. that age i mean you are observing it right now oh yeah like my my son and his friend leo they had a time at the the playground the other day where all they did is just march around and chanted, we are daddy elephants (laughs) the whole time. So yeah, and they don't do that on their own, but together they engage in that. So I I feel like it's the same sort of energy at work. Now, yeah, I miss that. We need to, we need to bring that back. We'll have after this, we're going to have a, we are daddy elephants session in the office. Now, there's a, a 1979 study that followed this up, and, and, and indeed the researchers here set out to replicate the results of the 78 study. Uh, and this uh, one is titled Halloween Masks and De-Individualization, uh, and this was published in Psychology Reports, April 1979. So this time uh, they looked at 58 costume kids, ages 9 through 13, and uh, all of them in this case is, are unaccompanied by adults. So there are no adults there to, uh, you know, to, to inflict rules and regulations on the, the Halloween mm. uh, traditions. They, uh, th- this time the researchers uh, tell the children to take two and only two pieces of candy from a bowl. 
Uh, you know, then they shut the door. S- same situation takes place. They peek around the corner through the peephole. This is what they found. Mass children were significantly more likely to violate the instructions, yeah. grabbing a healthy fistful of candy <laughs> 62% of the time versus 37% for unmasked counterparts. That's interesting, uh, especially because of the age difference. So yeah. we're talking 9 to 13-year-olds here instead of the much younger children in the first study. Mm-hmm. Also, that uh, what I'm noticing is that they're completely different authors for both studies. So this wasn't um, the first team trying to replicate their efforts. It was an entirely different team, probably in a different part of the country. Well, and I think it's worth us explaining what they mean when they say de-individuation here, right? So that is a psychological process by which a person's identity is subsumed. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this is the this isn't my language. Obviously, obviously, I don't throw subsumed around a lot, <laughs> but uh, it's subsumed by the identity of a larger group. And in this case, the the mask thing can can play into it, right? Uh, I wonder if the kids were masked and they were by themselves. If this, you know, how this would play out. Well, in this. Uh this uh, particular study, they were they were unaccompanied by adults, so there were no adults. No, there. I mean no other children, too. I, oh. I guess like what creepy kid goes around all by themselves trick-or-treating at nine years old? Well, in the first study, they did find that uh, kids who came in groups were uh, more than twice as likely to steal yeah. as those who came alone. So, yeah, there's yeah. definitely, uh, you know, one is uh, potentially a problem, but you get two together and they're just going to fall into that uh, that group identity of yeah. the, the trick-or-treating fiends. So, okay. So, all right. The first thing that we're establishing here is that uh, costuming, especially during Halloween, provides a certain amount of anonymity and that within a group – it provides the potential for this de-individuation in which you divorce yourself from your day-to-day identity mm-hmm. and allow yourself to be uh, absorbed into the identity of this larger group. Yeah. It's almost like a cult type thing. Yeah, I mean, it's instantly it makes me think of various and often vile scenarios where you have hooded individuals right. parading about and doing things. It's, it's the same energy. It's the same mechanism, but entrusted to children as opposed to uh, uh, taken on by adults. Well, let's let's speed it forward a little bit uh, to maybe maybe a period of time. That, I mean, I'm sure everybody can relate to the, the being a child and dressing up in mm-hmm. costume and maybe grabbing a fistful of candy. But 1993, there was a study. Uh, and this was cited, I don't know if you noticed this, but this particular study was cited across the board in all the studies afterwards as like a, a sort of foundational oh, source yeah, for so these Halloween studies. Yeah. Uh, so it's called Dressing in Costume and the Use of Alcohol, Marijuana, and Other Drugs by College Students. So no surprise, <laughs> uh, they did this study looking at 1,200 college students. I don't remember what um, area of the country it is. They might have they might have split it up, actually. Uh, and... No duh. They found that those that were in costumes were more likely to consume alcohol than those that weren't, right? And they were also more likely to use drugs over the course of the night. Now, anybody who – you don't even have to have gone to college. Anybody who's been over the age of 18 and has gone to an adult Halloween party where people are in costume – I think this will probably be a common experience. Yeah. I I have to admit that during college and in – the time period uh, following college, uh, the the most hungover I ever uh, managed to get, uh, both times it resulted from a Halloween party. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, I definitely saw some crazy stuff at mm-hmm. Halloween parties when I was living in the Boston area. One time I went 
uh, to a Halloween party. These people lived on the grounds of an, it was an abandoned, uh, this is going to sound made up, but it's a real thing. Mm. It was an abandoned mental institution on the grounds of a cemetery just outside of Boston. On top of an Indian burial ground. (laughs) I don't know if there was an Indian burial ground, but they definitely had a potter's field next door where you could, you could see it. You know what I mean by a potter's field, Mm -hmm. but they just had like the bricks with numbers on them and things like that. Uh, and the people that I knew who lived there, uh, they were basically paying rent to the town to live in this thing and make sure that people didn't come by and vandalize it. Um, so they threw this crazy Halloween party. <laughs> and I mean, you could, you went into the basement of this place and they had gurneys and, uh, straight jackets and like all the files on the patients were still there. That was the weird part to me was oh. that the, like the privacy element was not at all thought about. So essentially you had a, a session nine thing. It was very much part. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I decided to go as Aphex twin. Okay. To this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that's which, my twenties. Which incarnation of, uh... it was the window liquor Aphex okay. twin. That's a good where costume. He's, I, yeah. I had, you know, they actually made masks or that you could print out that were that oh, face. Okay. I was going to ask how you maintained that smile. Yeah. But... I had the mask and I had a white suit on the whole time. But, uh, yeah, I saw some crazy stuff at that, at that, uh, abandoned mental asylum. So I believe this 1993 study, I think most of us do. I wouldn't qualify this as a study that would blow your mind. This isn't stuff to blow your mind, but it, this definitely adds more fodder to our principle here, right? That like, oh, yeah. the costuming element, uh, uh, allows your identity to sort of be more fluid and flexible. Yeah, and I mean, in, you know, studies like this, they're not necessarily saying, hey, here's this crazy thing about right. your life that you never noticed before, but saying, hey, here's some science to back up that thing that we've all noticed. Because sometimes yeah. the thing that we think we know when you apply uh, the, the rigors of science to it, you realize, all right, this doesn't actually work the mm-hmm. way we were thinking uh, on surface level. So uh, studies like this are just as important. Yeah, and so there's also – this is when things start to get dark too. So um, – and no surprise, you know, I think that the older that we get, that uh, the costuming element brings along – like I said at the top, right? It's a pushing of boundaries, so it brings along some taboo elements mm-hmm. to it. So uh, there's a study done in 2007 about um, basically race and othering in Halloween costumes. And it was specifically focused on college students. So again, this is a – you know isolated to the college student area, although a lot of the examples that they came up with were not necessarily isolated to that group. Mm -hmm. So this study is called Unmasking Racism, Halloween Costuming and Engagement of the Racial Other. And it was published in Qualitative Sociology. And basically the authors uh, of this piece they um they present at the top in their abstract they they say that they think of halloween as being a constructive space where people have the opportunity to engage in different identities which includes racial concepts and that there are some people who argue not necessarily these authors although i think there's something to this that halloween is what we would think of as a tension management holiday it's different from you know christmas or thanksgiving which probably <laughs> uh, create more tension yes, uh, and they compare it to uh, like new year's or mardi gras uh, in that it allows it sort of frees us up from societal mores and uh, gives us you know an opportunity for rebellion it's a it's, they call it a ritual of rebellion that permits possible countercultural feelings right uh, and in this case 
you know, they, they say, well, you know, usually these holidays or the, the idea behind this is it's a reversal of social roles. Um, so for instance, like subjugated groups, groups in a, in a lower position are able to assume positions of power. And they connect this to, and I'm, I'll explain this theory a little bit more later, but, um, there's a Russian theorist named Mikhail Bakhtin, uh, and he has the, the kind of the big thing that he's known for theory-wise is the carnivalesque. And they mm-hmm. connected up to that theory, this idea of um, medieval Europe carnivals. Oh, yeah, the same so, kind of thing was going yeah, on Yeah, so there. people are in mass, parading about, creating mischief. Yep. The, um, the, 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 the shift of power that takes place where often you have a fool king or the, or the fool leader of the festival. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but they also say, uh, you know, there's this idea about Halloween in particular that's connected to this. The reason why in the U.S. we give it such national status uh, is because it fosters that kind of social inversion, right? Mm-hmm. So um, while holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving, for instance, are more institutionalized and focused on tradition and family and things like that, Halloween – People think of Halloween as being that one night of the year where they can let go and they can enjoy a degree of license that they could – that would otherwise never be attainable, right? Right. Um, basically, they can get away with things that they wouldn't be able to get away with normally. So these – the authors of this piece, though, they say, OK, that's good and fine, but there's a racial element that's coming into play here that's displaying some some disturbing patterns of how – White costumers are using that opportunity to, uh, to not identify with other races, but to sort of uh, make fun of and, and, and sort of reinforce stereotypes of other races that they have. Yeah, and in this, I, I think you, you you see varying levels of this. So. so- it's easy to imagine a straight up racially offensive costume, right. you know, where you're just you're just basically dressing up like the worst kind of a stereotype for a particular racial group. But then on the other hand, you see and I've definitely seen people do this before where you're you're going after certain cultural icons. You want to you want to be yeah. that cultural icon and you either don't realize or you're a little numb to the to the realization that to Try to become that icon as a as a white individual. Um, you're you're engaging at least in some light racism, you know. Yep. Like if you you decide, oh well, you know, I'm a big hip hop fan and I really like this particular artist. That doesn't mean you can necessarily dress up as uh, as him or her. In fact, the, they noted that stuff like that happened at such parties. Mm-hmm. Um, w- one example that they had was uh, there were uh, apparently. And the way that they studied this was that they had 663 college students across, uh, I believe it was southeastern America, mm-hmm. collect journal entries about their costuming experience over the course of Halloween. And this isn't just what they costumed as, but what they, they saw at the parties that they went to. Uh, and uh, what was reported that there were two white men who uh, went in blackface as oh. Venus and Serena Williams. Ugh. And so this is 2007, so not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was um, there were uh, three women, uh, all of different ethnicities, who wanted to do the Charlie's Angels, uh, the the movie version of Charlie's Angels. And so um, a Caucasian woman ended up doing the Lucy Liu character mm. and was you know like uh, painting on makeup to make herself look Asian and like you said, not really understanding it. But on the reverse side. Uh, they reported that there was a, a black male college student who went as Eminem. So there's a lot of this playing around with race and gender and sort of 
you know, uh, trying to explore identity, but at the same time, like some of some of these instances, uh, as identified by the authors, <laughs> weren't necessarily uh, experimental, but were more reinforcing ideas that they already had. Yeah, and an implicit racial bias definitely playing into a lot of these, where it's it's not even happening at a at a you know conscious level. You're not you're not really thinking about it, but then these these various um, 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 implicit uh, biases rise to the surface. Yeah, I think this would be one of those situations if, and, and they talked about it a little bit in this study, but that like if you called out somebody for something like this, they would probably be shocked, right? Yeah. Like they would go, oh, well, I, no, I'm not racist. That's not what I was intending at all, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, they, the whole idea here is that they thought of Halloween as being a safe context for exploring this kind of thing, but also that it's, uh, it's a time when the potential for any kind of insult is completely suspended, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think I just saw, like, and not that this would be insulting, but it's just kind of stupid, like, uh, like a week or two ago that, like, one of the most popular costumes this year is a um, sexy Donald Trump. <laughs> like, you can you can buy that off the rack. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's like, I, I think that that's the kind of thing going on here. But at the same time, as the authors are arguing that it's reinforcing racial bias and stereotypes. Yeah, it reminds me, too, of uh, I believe it was the first Halloween immediately following 9-11, in which a picture made the rounds of of, um, a couple who had dressed like somebody addresses the Twin Towers and the other person addressed as an airplane. And it, it's funny that you say this. Go ahead, because I have a personal story. Oh, that's okay. connected to this. I'm just yeah. saying it, it made the the rounds, and quite clearly, they were approaching this from the standpoint of it's a safe Halloween's a safe zone, yeah. and an outrageous costume is allowed, even if it is uh, really too soon for that particular joke at that at that given point. And this was this was the month afterward, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. This was very very soon. So I uh, specifically remember that Halloween right afterward. Uh, a guy who I knew went to a Halloween party as a dead pilot. Oh, uh, and yeah. he thought it was the funniest thing ever and that he was, you know, he wasn't, he was trying to be offensive, but he was also just trying to kind of like, again, like push the boundaries, yeah, push, push bu- the push limits. Boundaries, push people's buttons, yeah. get, a, get a rise out of people. Um, and I remember him thinking it was like this super clever, funny thing. And it just did, it fell real flat with, mm-hmm. with everybody at the party. Yeah. Now on the the racial side of the situation, I have to admit that uh I'm I'm a big fan of some terrible movies. And one terrible movie that I uh, I really enjoy is uh, Nothing But Trouble. Okay. The um I know what you're talking the about. Really really bad <clears throat> Dan Aykroyd film yeah. with all sorts of really cool like horror elements, sort of tales from the crypt type elements <laughs> thrown throughout. Yeah. And then there's a great scene where Digital Underground performs, so it's Humpty Hump, uh, you know, <laughs> parading about. about and yeah. so part of me has always <laughs> wanted to be Humpty Hump for oh, Halloween. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but I but I can never be Humpty Hump. I can never take that on as a costume because right. of the the racial aspects of of doing it. And I'm comfortable with that. I'm not complaining about it. Yeah. But like that's an area where like the voice that says, wouldn't it be cool to dress as Humpty Hump? And the other, the other part of me has to say, theoretically, it would be cool, but you would probably be you would probably be crossing a line. And ultimately, it would not be a comfortable scenario. Well, right, exactly. So I think that what the, the authors of this study would argue then, right, is that like your preconception of race is that you understand that that would be crossing a line that, yeah. that you know, is uh, not necessarily appropriate. 
Whereas the Caucasian uh, male who is in college and decides to go as Humpty Hump maybe uh, already has some preconceptions about what that means, right? Yeah. In fact, like that's the the kind of rapper uh, outfit or like uh, the other one that they talked a lot about was that like, you can buy prepackaged sort of like ethnic thug outfits uh-huh. from these Halloween stores, mm-hmm. or at least you could at the time they were doing this. Um, that that enhances your perceptions, your stereotypes of things, right? Um, and that it doesn't necessarily allow them to have the opportunity to to find the new beliefs or to learn and change. I don't know. I'm kind of interested. Like, I wonder if if you do something like that and then you're sort of performing this other, this imaginary other that you have of like what it would be like to be in digital underground. Yeah. Like, like. Uh, does that afford you the opportunity to sort of like put yourself in somebody else's shoes? I I don't know. Yeah. It's, um, the authors of this piece certainly didn't think so. Yeah. But uh, like the digital underground example, I I can, the thing is I can definitely imagine someone approaching that and saying, not even thinking about Humpty Hump as an African American man and thinking, well, it's just, it's a ridiculous character with a funny nose and a big fur coat. And he talks in a funny voice and he got busy in a backstage bathroom. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) Yeah, lost his nose in a horrible accident. But yeah, um, yeah but 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 in doing that, you, uh, you you glide right over the racial connotation. So yeah, absolutely. So I mean, like, uh, the, I, I'm sure. Like, I know I've definitely seen stuff like this at parties I've gone to before. I'm sure a lot of people have. But they provided some very concrete examples outside of the 663 college students who reported for this study. Okay. Um, and one of them was, I didn't know about this, apparently in 2003, Louisiana State District Judge Timothy Ellender went to a Halloween party in blackface, and he had an Afro wig on and a prison jumpsuit. I think I remember seeing and, uh, still um, from this. when they called him out on it, he said, oh, what, it's just a harmless joke. you know. And then you think about the connotation of like, well, this is a guy whose yeah. job it is is to, is to decide whether or not people go to jail or stay free like uh this is like hugely inappropriate um but then um there's also like you know d- just dominated in the media reports of uh people wearing blackface at halloween parties uh in, in such outfits enacting images of police brutality cotton picking and even lynching mm. um so i mean that again too it's like clearly showing that like you don't really have all that much of an understanding for what it means to be of a different ethnicity you know those are the things that you associate with it like yeah. like uh so anyways the, the the third thing that i thought was really interesting were these they talked about these prepackaged costumes there's two in particular they pointed out from 2002 one was called the vato loco which was this stereotyped mask of a latino thug Mm. And then the other one was called the Kung Fool, uh, and it was like a caricature outfit, like a kind of like a, a karate, um, uh, what do you call him, gi, mm-hmm. uh, like outfit, um, but that it also included like a mask that made your eyes look slanted and like buck teeth that you would insert in your mouth. So it was like this real like racial physical stereotype of being Asian. And this is 2002. This isn't like... 1962. This is, right. this is just like 13 years ago. Um, so, you know, they, they, they point out like that the, they think that the Halloween has sort of been thought of as a cultural space in which they can 
they being the people wearing these costumes can sort of let this racist ghost out of the box. That's how they put it, not me. Uh, it's they're, they're, They get a little um, metaphorical with their language and the Halloween themes and stuff in this article. I wonder, would racist ghost be an appropriate Halloween costume, though? <laughs> Maybe if it were carried out with enough... The ghost uh, of a racist? Yeah, Wasn't that was a thought out, you know? theme on American Horror Story and the witch one? Oh, I didn't watch that season. I think it was. If I remember correctly, I think, like, one of the witches was was black and she was able to use some kind of spell that summoned um the zombies of like racist farmers from around the area or something somebody correct me out there if i'm wrong on this but i remember there being a very strange halloween themed episode where they they did this it was like the punishment for these guys being slave owners i think huh. was that she was able to like summon their their spirits up again later so i mean think about that right like that's on national television and um that's not reinforcing stereotypes necessarily but but you know what i mean like there's these kind of like roles and identities that people are trying out and trying to understand things that are different from themselves othering you know yeah. uh, they all kind of play hand in hand i have to admit that i after reading enough uh, researching enough about um, witchcraft persecution i'm mm-hmm. i'm st- i'm a little weirded out when i see like um not so witch much costumes. Witch, the witch costumes, but also like you know the new Vin Diesel witch hunter movie yeah. where he's the hero of this picture, and and it's it's kind of unsettling when you think of witchcraft persecution and 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 it and the and how these these stereotypes were used to send so many innocent people to their to torture and death. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you. And especially when you think about it in the context that, like, these prefabricated witch costumes are being sold and, you know, uh, people are making, uh, what, what did I say, $1.4 billion yeah. off of this costuming industry, uh, celebrating the persecution and, and torture and death of this again it's a subjugated group right yeah i mean you know it's not it's certainly not one-to-one with uh, some of the 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 racial uh, issues we were talking about earlier uh and it's a lot more complicated because you have you know you have various you know myths and folk tales weaving their way in there uh, popular media springing up uh out of equal parts of fiction and history so it's it's a convoluted topic but I, i i have to admit some of the witch costumes at least, you know, cause a little light to go on for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, maybe that's – it's, again, back to that whole taboo thing. Yeah. Know, that uh, the the symbol of the witch, uh, both in the guilt that we kind of feel when we look back at the history of it and also the, the witches being, like, outside of the community, right, is, like, the perfect kind of – boundary-pushing taboo for Halloween. In fact, uh, one of the articles that I'm about to get into uh, talked about how during Victorian time, Victorian time, you know, those old times, uh, that American women uh, specifically would dress either as Egyptians or gypsies because those were the two, like, most taboo kind of uh, exotic other costumes that they could wear. And I guess you still see uh, people of varying races dressing up as ancient Egyptians. Like maybe enough time has passed that there's like less yeah. people don't think of ancient Egyptians as being a contemporary race. Right. But as more of a like a almost like dressing as an elf, right? Right, right, dressing as a character from a yeah. movie or something. Yeah, exactly. Alright, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Alright, we're back. 
So okay, we've we've spotlighted that uh, the the masks and the costumes allow children to sort of feel like they can get away with certain things that they get subsumed into a group. We've spotlighted uh, how it sort of can change how we think about identity and race and and how it can also serve for us to get more drunk and to do a lot of drugs during Halloween. Uh, but then there's obviously a gendered element to it as well, right? Um, anybody who's seen over the last, again, like 30 or 40 years, there's definitely been an element of sexiness that's been oh, brought yes. into uh, female attire. And in fact, I, I do want to point out like one of the um, sources that I'm going to use when we're talking about this is from our sister podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You. Uh, Kristen and Caroline have done uh, at least two episodes on this topic. And Kristen has a really great post on uh, the term slut uh and what that means and the history behind it. And uh, I, I don't really want to bring that into it, but that there's there's things connected to it in that post that I think have to do with our conceit in this episode, which is that costumes allow you to perform a different identity. Okay. I mean, it, it matches up with a lot of what we've been talking about already in that you – you take on this uh, this costume. You take on this different identity, and uh, you have a little more license to be uh, sexier than normal, more revealing yeah. than normal, a little more amorous than normal. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, there's a history professor uh, that is named Nicholas. Is named his name is Nicholas Rogers, uh, and he actually says, you know, this, the costuming tradition of Hallamas goes all the way back to being both a prayer for the dead, as we sort of think of it um, th- with the Halloween connotation, mm-hmm. but also a prayer for fertile marriages. Mm-hmm. So there was already an element of kind of gendered sexiness to it. Um, not as such, not as th- we would think of it today. But like, for instance, boys in choir used to dress as female virgins. Uh, for Hallowmass. So cross-dressing and sex and virginity and fertility were all elements from the start. Okay, well, that's good for anybody that is planning a kind of sexy costume this year. And if somebody calls you on it yeah. at, a, at a Halloween Go party, it's like, why aren't you a zombie? Why aren't you dressed up as a sexy Egyptian or something? You can say, well, actually, I'm tying into some of the... Uh, the original right, themes. This is the, <laughs> I am old school Halloween. I'm doing some history. <laughs> this is my history project. Um, so he talks also – this is where I got the thing about the Victorian uh, costumes was also this, this Nicholas Rogers guy. And he said that that at that point in time, just like as we were just talking about, the Halloween was thought of as a night to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do and to have people look at them, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why they're dressing as Egyptians or gypsies. But then in the 1970s, this interesting thing happens where um, the sexy costume, both for men and women, emerged – uh, and uh, Kristen's research and then this article that I found in Time called The Definitive History of the Sexy Halloween Costume both point to this, that there were a lot of um, Halloween parades in gay neighborhoods in New York, West Hollywood, and San Francisco. And out of these big kind of raucous bacchanalia parties mm-hmm. uh, came the, the sort of genesis for what we think of now as like the modern sexy girl costume, right? Um, so – you get that. That event happens and then just like with anything, uh, businessmen and marketers see that and they say, well, that seems like it's something that would make a lot of money. So they start designing these costumes, selling them and targeting adults. And so that's when we start to see sort of towards the late 70s this uh, emergence of the adult Halloween uh, experience coming back. It's not just for kids anymore. And so you and I were just talking about this earlier, like – 
when we were kids in the early 80s, uh, there was sort of that weird stigma of like, well, at a certain point, you yeah. shouldn't be out trick or treating anymore. You know, like I, I definitely remember there was a point where like I was out and like a, a parent would answer the door and say like, aren't you a little old for this? You know, uh, and I'd come up with some excuse like, oh, but you were in costume, right? I was. Yeah. See, that's the thing. I mean, if you're, if you're an older kid and you're showing up at the doorstep and you have no, and costume, you're asking for candy. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, that's, you're kind of breaking the rules here. Exactly. I don't care how old you are, but put, put a, Put some sort of mask on. So you you find that so there's a t- 2006 study on children's costumes done by a sociologist named Addie Nelson, and she found that uh, not only were they distinctly gendered, but that for women the costumes that you know these are off the rack costumes, not mm-hmm. necessarily what people are coming up with on their own. They're usually princesses or beauty queens for the girls' choices. Uh, and then there's uh, also in 2006 there was a New York Times article quoting a costume merchant. And he said that since the early 2000s, the sexy iterations of costumes have compromised 90 to 95% of the female costumes that he sells at his store. So um, Kristen, our colleague, basically makes the point, okay, well, what's the reason behind the sexy costume boom? It's because they're popular, because both women and girls are buying them. Uh, and, you know, the, there's marketing behind it. There's money to be had there. So, yes, it's a cultured identity thing, but it's also an economic thing yeah. as well. Uh, and <laughs> I'll also point this out for Kristen, because if any of you out there have ever watched Kristen's uh, video series for Stuff Mom Never Told You, you know that she likes to get into costume and yes, play characters. She does. Uh, and she speculates that we're moving now from a period of just the sexy Halloween costumes to the ironic sexy costumes. So I, I think what she means by that is like, I see this a lot when I go to like pop culture conventions, uh, like, like sexy Darth Vader. Yeah. I've like, definitely seen a trend like of this. Yeah. People sexifying, uh, characters or costumes that you wouldn't traditionally think of as being sexy. I saw a, a sexy version of, uh, what's the name of the, the main villain from Fury Road. Uh, oh God, I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, it's a. Uh, thank you, super producer Noel just told us that it was a Morton Joe. Yeah, yeah I saw a picture of that. Yeah, he and, and of course that on its own is an interesting character to to see so embraced uh, among mm-hmm. uh, costumers and cosplay because he's he's a horrible guy. He's just a horrible individual mm-hmm. that uh, I mean to embody any aspect of him. Um, I if can you're, if you're thinking you know deep about it is is troubling. I can top that. Yeah. Uh, my wife just showed me the other day that uh, a friend of a friend got a uh, sleeve tattoo of a Morton Joe on her arm. <laughs> now think, consider this: that movie just came out like what three months ago. Yeah, uh, great movie. But like, but don't overreact. What, what are you saying about the idea that you're like, I really like that warlord rapist, yeah, who like keeps women locked up as like uh, concubines, yeah. basically. And that's uh, not just a for those who you haven't read it. That's not just a um, you know subjective read of the film. Like that is that's the plot of the that movie. Is the plot of the movie. It, yeah. it portrays him as such, and the the, the 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 harem that he keeps. These are not you know sexy doll eyed individuals. These are abused and traumatized individuals based on their treatment. Uh, I'll add to that uh, another thing that I see uh, very often at uh, conventions that I don't understand and, you know, forgive me, uh, maybe you have an alternate reading on this, is um, Watchmen cosplay Mm -hmm. when people cosplay as the uh, comedian and the Golden Age Silk Spectre together. So if you've seen, if you've read the book or if you've seen the movie, you know, uh, I guess spoilers for it, but like 
those two have an abusive domestic relationship that involves sexual violence. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you, you know, I see that a lot. I see a lot of people, couples, uh, wearing those costumes together and kind of, you know, walking around like, isn't this fun? Isn't this cool? I, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. But clearly it has something to do with, with what's going on here. I mean, this costuming experience is outside of just Halloween, right? So, um, I imagine, and I'm sure there's studies that if they haven't been published already are being written right now furiously by some graduate student about pop culture conventions and cosplay, that they also allow for exploration of identity, for othering, for all these kinds of things that we're talking about here, right? So what do we have next? What, what's next on the, the, the plate of so, studies? So sticking with the gender theme, there's two more studies I want to talk about. Um, in 1993, there was a st- study published in the Journal of Psychology called Age and Gender Difference in Children's Halloween Costumes. So we're bringing it back to kids, but we're sticking with the gender thing here. Uh, and it, the, the people who wrote it predicted uh, that Halloween costumes for first and second graders would be less gender stereotyped than those for preschoolers and children in kindergarten. So again, remember when I was talking earlier about that, that zone of three to five, the zone that your son is in right mm-hmm. now, uh, that this is an area of, of time that the authors speculate is, is when, uh, identity is still in flux, right? And so, uh, there's an idea that gender really needs to be reinforced. Okay. So this is costumes. a scenario where the, 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 the toddler, or not the toddler really, but the, the, the young child, three, four year old, they say they want to dress as a princess, and you say, like hell you are. You're dressing as a cowboy yes. because I have a lot of, of expectations uh, for your, um, your your gender preference here. Yeah, exactly, and their findings confirmed this. Uh, so they found actually that older boys – so when they're talking older boys, they're talking about like I think over the age of eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tended to prefer less masculine and more feminine costumes than the younger boys did. And the older girls preferred more masculine and less feminine costumes than the younger girls did. So there definitely was like a between the ages of three and five, there's that like reinforcing gender thing. And then there's like a a period of time where they play Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe not play. I I don't think there's like cross-dressing as much as it's sort of like they're less concerned by that. Right. But then it evolves by the time we get into high school and, and college, as we've seen, into the sexy costume stereotype. Right. You know, and that makes more you know, sense. You imagine a, uh, either a boy or a girl, and they're having a lot of expectations placed on them in the way that they dress every day, as well as some of these specialty costumes. Like There comes a point where you're going to say, you know, I would like to maybe wear something that's not pink. Or, you know, right. I would like to wear something that's colorful and flowy. And... Um, you know, without and engage in that possibility without all of the adult baggage yeah. that the the parents are are, are possibly carrying right. Exactly. Around. How much of it is the parent saying? I think you should be uh, whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean, like in your case, you, <laughs> Bastion Giraffe. Really? How <laughs> about Leatherface? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a. Uh, it's not gendered. You just want him to. Yeah. Be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but no. I mean, like I do see that this kind of. Um, you know, gender openness and curiosity, even in my own son, you know, where he, sure. he likes to see somebody playing in a dress and he's like, I'd like to run around in a dress. And you, uh-huh. of course, without the adult baggage we place on that scenario, why not? I totally remember that period of time. There was a point when I, and my, you know, upbringing wasn't particularly like conservative or 
I think of it as not being gendered, but of course it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and saying like, you know, I wanted a Barbie doll to play with because the, the girls in my kindergarten class all had these Barbie dolls. So I, of course I wanted one. Uh, and I was discouraged from that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was really like, I couldn't make sense of it at that age because I, you know, they couldn't explain to me well, if you do that, that's going to say a certain thing about you and people are going to make fun of you and that's going to subsequently reflect back on me, right? Uh, so it was, it was an interesting kind of thing to look huh. back on. That's it. Now, do you have any siblings? I do, yeah, but they're 10 years younger than me. Okay. See, because I, uh, I had, I have younger sisters, so there were always Barbie dolls in the house. So, like, yeah. they were, they were there. And, you know, I would play with the, the, the Barbie house sometimes. They had a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, sure. They had everything but a toilet in there. Well, right, exactly. <laughs> and if you, you know, as a, as a kid of that age, if you're using your imagination with your toys, mm-hmm. the, the gender element is probably not something you're even thinking of. Right. right. But, anyways, so, so th- that ties back into what we were talking about earlier with the the, the sort of preschooler uh, Halloween mentality. So it's it's gendered and then it's not gendered. And then don't forget, it also encourages you to steal or take a lot of candy. There's one more study uh, that is called The Pink Dragon is Female. Uh, and it was published in 2000 in the Psychology of Women Quart- Quarterly. And basically what they did was a a content analysis of all the children's Halloween costumes that they could find that were available. And they saw it as a categorization. They broke up into three uh, categories, heroes, villains, and fools. And they wanted to see whether or not these these costumes, you know, very very much like the last study we were talking about, reproduce or reiterate conventional messages of gender. And what they found was that, yes, the, the female costumes were clustered around examples of femininity, like we talked about earlier with the princesses and the beauty queens. But also, uh, there was a higher ratio of animal costumes for girls. And mm-hmm. I've ne- maybe I just never noticed this, or maybe it's because of my age, food stuff costumes. So if girls didn't want to have gendered costumes, they could, I guess, be a strawberry or something. Yeah. Or, or a, I, what would... Well, this one, one of the costumes from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Uh, Is it? dressed as uh, food items. I don't remember mm-hmm. that. You know, even with animals, you have these gender stereotypes. Like right. We've, we've encountered with my, my son's favorite uh, animal is a giraffe. And then you go and you try and find... Uh, shirts for boys with giraffes? Yeah. You don't find them. You find sh- the, the boys' shirts have tigers and lions. <laughs> I mean, boys are not supposed to like herbivores for some reason. That's you know? funny because giraffes can be pretty brutal and tough when they yeah, want they, to be. Giraffe, giraffe can look after uh, after itself. Yeah, yeah. Swinging that neck around and uh, throwing in the odd kick. Well, okay. So we've got the so the animals and food stuff seem to be the compromise for young girls. For young males, the costumes are likely to feature villains uh, especially those that are symbols of death, which I, I don't know necessarily that how much I would read into that given Halloween and the symbology of death that, that you know, floats around that holiday and yeah. everything. But um, they did find in this content analysis that less than less than 10 percent of the costumes in 2000 were gender neutral. So the the food stuff items, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. uh, those were the only ones, you know, and that more often that male costumes had occupational roles, right? Like I'm a doctor, I'm a welder or whatever. I'm a podcaster uh, <laughs> and that the female costumes were usually based on what their appearance was in their relationships. Okay. So, all right. So to summarize, we've got uh, that Halloween costumes build gender. 
they are a way that we construct race and identity. And then there's also a, a moral element that we've talked about, uh, including both stealing and uh, intoxication. Yeah, allowing you to engage in behavior that you otherwise uh, wouldn't engage in or wouldn't engage to that degree. You know, and uh, one of the crazy things about this topic is that it's it's not just at Halloween. It's not just when we actually actively engage in the the wearing of masks, uh, be it for fun or as part of a religious ritual or, or, or what have you. But any time we put on clothing, we are in, we are engaging in mm-hmm. this kind of powerful uh, rebecoming. Oh yeah, uh, it's uh, you know a form of communication. Yeah, how we dress, the things that we own, the things that we wear. Even down to like what kind of car you drive or what kind of pencil you use or whatever, like all those things, whether we're conscious of it or not, are us communicating something about ourselves and identity to other people. Yeah, one observation that I, I, I keep coming back to whenever I dip my toe into this uh, this topic uh, it comes from a fabulous book uh, by Virginia Smith titled "Clean: A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity," which deals mostly with with that very concept, the idea that there's, there's physical cleanliness and then there's this idea of spiritual cleanliness. Yeah. And the two just become uh, irreversibly uh, in, uh, interwoven throughout history in many, uh, you know, um, amazing and, and sometimes very, uh, uh, you know, missable ways. But uh, she points out that modern cultural sociologists describe the human body as an unfinished body, a body created by nature but finished by humans. And so each of us okay. calls upon various bodies at various times. So there's a you know there's a cybernetic element to this you know right. we're we're inherently augmented uh, by our technology be that a wristwatch or an implant or just the clothing we wear to tweak who we physically are and therefore tweak who we are inside. Yeah, that's interesting, especially because like you know a topic that comes up on this show a lot is transhumanism or posthumanism, mm-hmm. and just thinking about it that way like. Like we think of that as being a very kind of sci-fi thing that's coming down the road. But just think about it. Like my dog doesn't wear clothes other than the collar that I put around his neck so I can walk him. Mm -hmm. Right. He doesn't need to express his identity within clothing. Uh, We're we're not the kind of people that do this, but some people put their dogs in little outfits. (laughs) Right. In order to sort of do that same thing to project identity uh, through that. Well, I mean, you look at the most primal example possible and imagine, you know, some sort of a cave person right. in prehistory, kills a wolf, skins it, wears the wolf hide. And yeah. so on several different levels, like on one level, it's it's an augmentation of the body for just purely to, to stay warm or even to provide some level of protection in combat. And then on on, a, on another level, though, he, that individual is taking on the hide of the beast, the, mm-hmm. the being of the beast, which... You know, we touched on a little bit in our Wolfsbane episode. That Absolutely. One of the models for werewolf transformation is you wear a magical hide. Yeah, or or the uh, – right, exactly, like the kind of barbarian wearing, like, yeah. wolf hides or, or even, like, wearing, like, the, the fur over their head or something, like, in taking on the role of the beast in combat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So in this, we get into the idea of embodied cognition, which is a philosophical model in which an agent's cognition, the way you think, the way you engage, the way you interpret the world is strongly influenced by aspects of an agent's body beyond the brain itself. So, you know, that entails 
not only how you feel about your body and how you appear, but then how you augment it through clothing. And to reiterate, too, uh, there is an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind from a couple years ago that that you guys did specifically about enclosed cognition. Yes. So if you know, we're going to touch on it here. But if you really want to take a deep dive, go back and check that out, and I'm sure we'll link to it. In the yeah, show we'll notes. have a link to that one on the landing page for this this uh, episode. But yeah, you see this idea of the body as a constraint, like your body is holding you back from being who you are inside. Mm-hmm. The body's a regulator, so in this case, the uh, the, the body's functions are, are regulating cognitive activity. You get into this whole mind-body uh, problem with it pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, And this leads into an additional take on, uh, on embodiment uh, that uh, deals particularly with garments, and this is enclosed cognition. And this stems from three initial studies by Hejo Adam and Adam Galansky from Northwestern University, and they've been examining the psychological and performance-related effects that wearing specific articles of clothing have on the person wearing them. And they actually coined this term enclosed cognition. Okay, and this is where we get the sort of uh, doctor cosplay experiment, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. so in, in fact, their, their primary experiments dealt with this. So in, in, in one experiment, they, uh, they found that people phys- physically wearing a lab coat, and that's key, not just looking at, at it, not just thinking about it. If they physically put it on, it increases selective attention compared to when they're not wearing a lab coat. Right. So it's like putting on a thinking cap, a thinking cap powered entirely by the symbolic nature of the cap. We think of yeah. the doctor as being ooh, serious and, uh, and observant. And then when we put it on, even though we have no illusions that we are becoming a doctor, Doctor, but we are, we're, it's like we're wearing the hide of that wolf. We're wearing the hide of that doctor, and in doing so, becoming them a little bit cognitively. Yeah, there's a lot going on there just in that one small experiment, in that it speaks to the, the kind of human nature uh, adherence to cultural narratives and imagination. And mm-hmm. again, you know, thinking back on Halloween and this idea of like, is it for kids? Is it for adults? It's like, we as adults every day are imagining and playing out these game scenarios in our head as we dress up the way we do. Yeah, and they, they found in some follow-up experiments uh, that it, that it, it specifically had to be a doctor's coat. If they told, It was the yeah. same lab coat, and they said, oh, it's a painter's coat. <laughs> it didn't have the same effect. And in all cases, it, it was the symbolic meaning of the, the outfit plus the physical experience of wearing it. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's key to pretty much every model we've looked at here that uh, you're taking on not just the appearance of the monster or, or the sexy Egyptian or what have you. Yeah. You are taking on some aspect of at least what you presume to be the mind of that individual, of that racial group, of that type of person, or that just straight-up monster. Yeah, and again, I think that that you know, explains the surge in popularity of costuming and cosplay. Uh in American popular culture right now, it's that has a lot to do with it. And maybe Halloween, that one day a year, isn't enough for mm-hmm. that kind of experimentation. People want to have more occasions in which they can do that and not have it be taboo, right? Yeah. So, and, I mean, that's why you, you see more and more of that these days. You see, uh, mm-hmm. like just here in Atlanta, um, we were going to talk about Krampus a little bit, but maybe we'll do a, a Krampus episode later on. Yeah. But there, there's a local Krampus. Uh, 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 
pub crawl yeah. kind of situation yeah. that goes on. People dress up like uh, this horned uh, Germanic monster and uh, parade about. They've got this thing here in Atlanta too. It's like a, they probably have it in other uh, cities now as well. But it's a zombie walk. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. It's another good one. And uh, it doesn't really. I mean, I think it's during October maybe, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I think it has more to do with it. The Walking Dead is shot here yeah. than it has to do with Halloween necessarily. But I mean, they get like 500 people, like all marching down the street through the city so, uh, in zombie garb. Huh. So the rest of the year, you go to you go to various carnival situations. You go right. to New Orleans. You go to uh, to various cons and dress up as these individuals. So, yeah. so yeah, we're kind of creating more and more opportunities for. Uh, for adults to engage in costume play and in, in costume recreation. Yeah, I think it speaks to, uh, like I said at the top again, like, so Halloween is like a way to sort of reflect back what's going on in culture at the time and our sort of need for more opportunities to costume and uh, play around with these identities seems to be a reflection of that as well, right? That there's more fluidity and flexibility uh, an acceptance of playing around with identity than Indeed. there maybe was uh, when we were kids. Yeah, yeah. Back back then, they, you, they were still into uh, you know you taking on a particular identity, but it was the one you had to keep for the rest of your life. Right. Hide exactly. Everything else. Yeah. Underneath. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm all in favor of uh, donning those costumes. Yeah. Well, that's why October is my favorite month of the year. You know, I love I love October not just for Halloween, but for all the things that kind of come along with it. The the autumn, the corn mazes, uh, hay rides, all that stuff, yeah. apple bobbing. And the podcast episodes and the related blog posts. Absolutely. Nice segue. So, again, to remind you, we're going to be doing uh, podcasts all month that are fairly tied into the month of October and to Halloween themes. But also, we've got coming up at the end of October, we'll be answering your listener mail on 1023 during our first Periscope session. Uh, and, and you know, as I've said before, we haven't Periscoped yet, but I believe you can interact directly with us there, too. You can type in questions for us and, you know, we'll try to answer them. Uh, and Monster Science. So we're big monster fans around here. And we've got four brand new episodes of Monster Science coming up at the end of the month. All through the month, we're going to be posting the first two seasons of Monster Science to our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where you can find us with the handle Blow the Mind. And finally, if people want to uh, reach out to us and let us know about their costuming experience and whether what, what kind of effects it's had on their identity or what they've seen with other people's identity, where can they reach out to us at? And maybe we can respond to that during the Periscope session. Oh, we'll just reach out to us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 